Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. everybody welcome back to the show welcome back to another week today i'm pretty excited we've got a first time guest somebody who i've been talking to for a while but getting on the show i'm excited to have them here today so everybody without further ado let's welcome sir hatchport hey everybody great to be on the show finally and great to finally be talking to you since uh we've been chatting on twitter for what almost almost a year right Something yeah pretty like much almost a year uh, it, we're coming up on that now with this whole uh, a lot of one year anniversaries <laughs> with yeah yeah w- one of the things that's kind of kept me sane well a- as sane as can be <laughs> over this <laughs> last year has been uh well you've been a part of it the getting into twitter like i've been on twitter since 2009 but i just never use it i would check it once a year maybe <laughs> and <laughs> And then it was just being in quarantine and, uh, and well, the thing that kind of brought us together, the cinematic void. Yeah. Yeah. That I've kind of like, I've been in LA for six years and I'm finally, I'm finally kind of connecting with the group of people that I've, I should have been connected to from day one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Thank goodness for, for cinematic void. Huh? I mean, um, these, these, well, first they started out weekly, right? Uh, these yeah. online screenings and then they kind of moved to every two weeks. But, um, yeah, I'm, I met you and, and several other really cool people on Twitter and we just get together for these screenings and chat and make jokes and stuff. And yeah, I, I can't wait to, you know, get in a theater again and maybe meet you guys in person and stuff. And yeah, it's, it's been a real, like, I guess you'd say godsend <laughs> to, to have this, in the last year. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I only got to go to the one cinematic void screening and I, we mentioned them a lot. People like I, a lot of past guests I know through the void or a few past guests I know and future guests as well. Um, but this year really has kind of turned me into the type of movie viewer I wanted to be <laughs> for like a long time. I mean, I, I always I always watch things, but I was always very scattershot about it. And I feel like the kind of trash cinema exploitation <laughs> fair that The yeah. Voyage specializes in is a is a genre that I really like. And I have I have experience just, you know, from the era I grew up in. I have a lot of experience with, but I'm really getting into like the nitty gritty, like the, these really weird corners <laughs> through void and then that inspired me and and a bunch of my other friends we're doing our own semi-regular uh group viewings you know mainly we just chat while we're doing virtual watches because a lot of them are still back in alaska oh. and we just do that kind of almost weekly not quite and we pick a lot of the same style of movie that would be on 
the void. Yeah. It really has become a, a kind of a comfort food <laughs> over the past year. Yeah. And as I, as I mentioned to you before we started, I mean, like I said, I, I wasn't a cinephile before. That started in the last 10 years or so uh, when I really started to get into film. And it was largely because of the American Cinematheque and the New Beverly, Cinematic Void, all these, you know, programmers. That's when I really started to get into film. And then especially the last like four or five years is when I started going down this exploitation <laughs> sleaze kind of trash film route and you know, and so cinematic void, these, these online screenings happened at like the perfect time for me. Um, I, my, my first void screening was 2017 though. It was Frankenhooker and uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, which was amazing oh, <laughs> on Valentine's wow. day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a Valentine's day double. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was, uh, I felt like I was indoctrinated <laughs> into the void cult and then, you know, as I said, that and, and the, the new Bev and all that. Um, now, uh, have we talked about Horrorthon too? Are you a Horrorthon guy? I can't no, remember. You no, know, I, so I'm, I've got kids and I don't have a car. For most of the time down here, I have not owned a car. And oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> I, and with kids, it, it's, and a young kid that I've had since moving down here, it just, I haven't gotten out to theaters nearly as much as I would like to. Um, mm. like, like I've only been to the Egyptian twice. I've never been to the new, new Bev. Oh uh, my gosh. I know I've never gone to <laughs> oh, the fest or any of this stuff that. Oh, wow. I know. I know. I'm just doing it on my own here. So like I've been, I've just been doing this stuff on my own. And so it, it's been fun to kind of connect with these people. Yeah. Yeah, see, Horathon, the first Horathon I went to was in 2011, and I have not missed a year since. I mean, other than last year, of course. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that that Horathon is like my Christmas. I mean, I look forward to that every year, and that's how I kind of came to to other Cinematheque events and the and Void and Beyond Fest. It all started with with Horathon, really, and they kind of. <laughs> Grant and company slowly kind of corrupted my mind, <laughs> and yeah. opened me up to this whole new world of cinema, which has been so much fun. And I'm still exploring, you know, there's, there's still so much to learn. Yeah. There, there's so much like the movie that you were bringing today, I'd never even heard of. And I'm still finding oh, wow. stuff. I'm still finding stuff every day. Like I will just go on, on Amazon prime or I'll go on the arrow player and I'll just like, a hunt around or what I, I, especially on prime, you just go on those recommended or watch mm -hmm. next, watch next. You just keep going down like 20 rows deep and there's movies that I've never even heard of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, prime prime is a good resource. They have a lot of sort of deep dive old horror movies and exploitation movies. It's actually kind of surprising uh, the stuff they have. I've, I've seen a lot of cool stuff on there. Yeah. It's, really amazing how much like how deep their catalog is and it, it's just it's stuff that you some of it you kind of have to search for or you have to do that like keep searching through recommended titles forever but mm -hmm. you'll find stuff that is is practically unseen in the modern world another one like, 
Tubi, the, the free service, you have to watch ads with Tubi. But they, yeah, yeah. A, they have a ton of really cool exploitation stuff from the 60s and 70s. Like they yeah. have a bunch of Ted Michaels movies. I, I was kind of like early in quarantine. I was like, oh, I'm going to start going through the Ted Michaels filmography. And I made it about six or seven deep and I, I kind of lost a little bit of interest. But <laughs> I've, I've gone back a little bit. But that's uh that's how I was with Herschel Gordon Lewis. I I yeah. I, I, th I think I watched 2000 Maniacs because I was a 10,000 Maniacs fan back in the day and that's <laughs> where they got their name. Um and I was like, "Wow, what is this?" And I I kind of liked it, but I it was a little almost a little too rough around the edges for me. Yeah. And then I watched Wizard of Gore and I think one more of his and I haven't really followed up on it. I have to be like his type of filmmaking. I really have to be in the right time, right mind frame. Like <laughs> yeah. it's not a, just like, I'll just pop this on for some popcorn entertainment because it is, his films can be so deathly slow. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the gore by, you know, by any standards really is really ridiculous. Obviously it's super shocking for the time it was made, but it's just, they're, they're kind of they're Like I do like, I've only seen a few of his films and I do appreciate them, I think, more than I like them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. I think they're sort of fascinating and, and ahead of their time. But um, I have yet to see one that I was just like, yeah, this is a legitimately good movie. <laughs> I know. But then I see like that Arrow box set <laughs> that. Yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And part of me is just kind of like looking at it from a like kind of a curator's mindset of like, oh, I want. I want to preserve this sort of thing. Like um, one of the movies we're going to discuss today, even though I don't necessarily need it, I'm really looking at the new Blu-ray that came out for it just because it's like, oh, this is like such an interesting piece um, of film history that I, I, I want to have it. I want to have like a, in my library, so to speak. Yeah, uh, I, I've, I've actually, there are several Blu-rays that I've bought of films that I don't necessarily like but yet i'm compelled to keep watching them just because i'm fascinated like spookies is a really good example um yeah i i can't say that's a good movie but the history is fascinating and the execution is fascinating and it's kind of a comforting movie to watch even though like i said i can't say it's legitimately good even though pretty much only half of it is good maybe <laughs> right <laughs> It is one that I actually just saw for the first time this year. And I'm looking at that very gorgeous looking Blu-ray and yeah. like, oh, but this is such a fascinating failure. I do kind of want to, you want to watch it again. I want to see it in its best presentation possible. And I want, I want to see all of the behind the scenes stuff that they have. Yeah. Hack o Lantern is the same way for me. Oh, it's yep. another, another movie that's just a fascinating train wreck. And I had to buy the Blu-ray. Oh. Okay. So, um, I guess we should kind of like get into it. We, we've got our theme for the day and our theme that for the two movies we're going to be discussing today is Grindhouse. Now that yes. leaves a lot of room for interpretation. There's certainly a ton of movies we can pick. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll talk about the first one. You are about to see scenes from an unusual film about an amazing man. Ah! 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 
blame Andy for not wanting to take a leave of absence, can we, sir? Well, under the circumstances, would you? Not until after I got the killer, sir. <laughs> Something else for you to take care of? This man who called me. I don't have to beat him up, I just pay him money. He says there's a leak in your territory. Mr. No Legs, don't miss it. When Andy's sister shows up dead with drugs in her system, he and his fellow police officer Chuck begin an investigation that reveals a massive drug smuggling ring operated by crime kingpin D'Angelo and his ruthless double amputee enforcer, the titular Mr. No Legs. From the creative team behind Flipper. This movie, Mr. No Legs, also known as Gunfight, I believe, from 1978, it's a movie, well, it's the movie I'm choosing to bring today. It's one of those virtual watches I was talking about uh, it, during quarantine. I watched it a few months ago. And then after we watched it, like a really nice Blu-ray was announced by Massacre Video. I was very surprised by it. It was kind of the perfect movie for what I wanted at the time. It really hits a lot of great kind of exploitation fair, uh, 1970s sleazy cop movie like it, it hits a lot of those high points. I think it has some definite flaws, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like, I enjoyed the actual, just the, the real tone of it. Like it, it had a real seriousness and a real grittiness without being incredibly slimy. And also it felt handmade without being incredibly inept. Like a lot of these movies that we, we <laughs> see from the seventies, like the, like kind of like the regionally produced independent <laughs> horror mo or independent movies <laughs> uh, i felt like this one had just like not maybe not the budget but at least enough of the talent to make it feel kind of well it, it like uh, uh, what do i how do i want to say it, it went down smooth it was uh an enjoyable experience for me each of the times that i've seen it i've seen it a few times now but how about you you hadn't seen this before i brought this up uh just in general what did you think yeah, I had not even heard of this film before you mentioned it, and uh, I loved it. <laughs> I I was so pleasantly surprised, and and this is another of those films that I don't think I would have had the tools to appreciate it ten years ago, or maybe even five years ago. But I feel like this is one of those movies where I I, I saw it, and I feel like 
everything I've watched in the last 10 years has been leading up to this moment. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I completely agree. Like it, it's very ramshackle. It obviously seems fairly low budget, um, but it does have quite a bit of a pedigree. The director, I think his name is Rico Browning. Correct. Apparently he played the Gill Man in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. In, in the underwater <laughs> scenes. And uh, uh, as you said, it's from some of the co-creators of Flipper. And it actually has some some talent in it. Like Richard Jekyll is in it, who was in Day of the Animals and Grizzly and, and a bunch of other things. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty successful character actor. Yeah. You, 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 when you see, if you see this movie, you'll recognize him from something, even if you don't quite realize what it is. Yeah, I, f- I feel like there's a couple of actors in this. Um, John Ager, Lloyd Bachner, uh, who I know from The Twilight Zone because he was in, um, I think he was in To Serve Man. Um, but he was, also did a ton of TV work and he was in Point Blank, which is a film I, I absolutely love. And then Ron Howard's dad is in it from the yeah. first scene. <laughs> I'm yeah. going, wait a minute, is that Rance Howard? Yeah, he's in this lot. <laughs> sure enough, it is. So it's a it's a very strange conglomeration of things. But then there's this band in it, too. Or it's a duo who I've never heard of. And, and they probably were these nobodies, as far as I know. Um, it's a it's a strange beast, this film. But as you said, the tone is is surprisingly kind of serious not too goofy although there are some scenes that are definitely <laughs> off the rails um yeah i i really loved this movie uh, i'm i'm very glad that you turned me on to it oh good good and yeah i definitely this is one of the movies that you know you said you didn't have the tools to appreciate this like 10 years ago i feel like kind of the same way i think i would have liked it maybe on a different level if I had seen it a couple of years ago, but I think all of the stuff that I've been watching and the people and the conversations that I've been getting into in this last year made me really appreciate this on a, on a different level, like made me really appreciate what is good instead of what is just kind of like cheesy or laughable about parts of this. Ramshackle is a good way to say it. And you mentioned that uh, singing group miracle. I think this is a I think, oh, mer- mercy. Yeah. Oh, mercy. Is that what they're? Yeah. Okay. I think they're, they're advertised. The MC calls them or says that they've sold millions. <laughs> yet the movie takes a very long pause for pretty much a full musical performance before it kind of gets back into what the movie is there for with a very long bar fight. Uh, Rico Browning ha- has done a few things. Like I said, like you mentioned, he was the, um, he was the gill man in the creature from the black lagoon movies. He did the swimming scenes. He did create Flipper along with the writer of this movie, Jack Cowden. Mm-hmm. They created Flipper and uh, worked on the series. So they're, they're operating in Florida, but this feels like a very Florida movie. Uh, I guess yeah. it, 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 it <laughs> takes place in Tampa. It has all the things that you might expect from a, a an independent movie where it just kind of like maybe focuses on some scenes a little too long, whether or not they're interesting, but it's just something to, to yeah. add out the running time. Um, yeah and and as actually i should mention that you know as i'm looking it up i guess mercy did have two billboard hits uh they were a florida pop group but they they did have uh two hits in the billboard hot 100 so i stand corrected yeah (laughs) 
I'd never heard of them. I hadn't either. Uh, Love Can Make You Happy was a bit of a hit. And uh, the other one was called Forever, which only reached number 79, but still. Um, yeah, so they have something of a pedigree and they did get a gold record. Wow. So I am good shocked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good for them. I guess I'll get right into it. What my big problem with this movie is, and I'll tell you, I like it was less of a problem on a rewatch because I knew what to expect. But my big problem with the movie is, well, Mr. No Legs, he ends up being a very minor character in the film with his name. <laughs> like, he, he does provide the inciting incident for a lot of what happens. But there's a point in the movie where he, he vows to take down the drug pink kingpin. He's like, I'm going to take everything away from you. Uh, just because the drug kingpin is kind of, well, Mr. No Legs is making some bad decisions and the drug kingpin gives him a dressing <laughs> down and it really like pisses him off. And he's like, I'm going to take everything you own. And he, he kind of enacts his plan. He's pitting the drug kingpin against the crooked cops and against the not so crooked cops. And yet he's not very good at it. He's very ineffectual. <laughs> he has a couple of standout scenes that that wheelchair with the shotguns hidden in the armrest. <laughs> is really cool he has a really long fight scene at a pool that is pretty cool as well it's amazing <laughs> that scene is is incredible and then we're gonna i'm gonna spoil this here but whatever it's the movie is from 1978 you can go back to it he kind of pits the cops together he ambushes the cops he gets this trap not the cops but his boss the drug kingpin and the crooked cop played by john agar and he gets them in the same room and the cops are like, it's a trap. Sorry, I keep saying the cops, but the two of them are like, it's a trap. Mr. Lake, no legs show, shows up, shoots one of them. And then Mr. No legs dies. He is killed with no fanfare. There's <laughs> and then the movie keeps going for 20 minutes. Yeah, it, it might. It, it might even just be a bit of dark humor that he goes down so easily after all this time. I, I, that is kind of shocking in that scene. It's like, really? <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah but he he's gone for like a lot of it yeah he's and, i mean he's not in let's see that was that scene is what right sort of on the cusp of the third act would you say oh uh, well right after that it, it's just we've got the big chase scene yeah there's a 25 minute car chase so that. i i feel like I mean, calling the third, calling the last 25 minutes, the third act is a bit misleading because it is just a car chase yeah. and the final, that car chase is great, but it, it was disappointing to me. Actually, it's disappointing to me on both viewings that his plan never comes together in any way. It, I don't know. I, I just wanted there to be some next level that his plan goes to and hmm he never kind of like breaks out of just being this, this angry underling that is always kind of being shit on by his boss. <laughs> and he keeps <laughs> yeah. screwing up. Like he keeps making bad decisions. He makes them very, very decisively. He's like, I'm going to do this. This will be a good idea. And it never is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I found his hubris kind of, kind of hilarious. Um, and then, I, you know, as we were talking, he has those couple of scenes where he definitely kicks some ass. Um, but but yeah, now that you pointed out, it is kind of funny. It, it's it, he's not in it very much, really. And and when he is, he's often inept, but not not totally. So, yeah, it's kind of a strange character. 
like the movie's called Mr. No Legs, and he does kill the, well, he doesn't even, <laughs> gosh, okay, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. I feel like I should just go over a little bit of the plot so people know what's what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> yeah, that'd probably, probably help. So there's a, a kid in the beginning that is part of the drug smuggling ring, but he's very low level. He's basically just helping unload at the docks with Rance Howard. And he's going to college and he goes home and he finds out that his girlfriend is, has found drugs and realizes that he is involved with drugs and she's going to leave. There's a bit of a struggle. She falls like completely accidentally, although he's, you know, laying hands on her, but accidentally she falls into the TV and dies. Her brother is the cop, Andy. And so the, the college kid, instead of calling the police, calls Rance Howard, who brings along Mr. No Legs. They're going to help, like, kind of cover it up. And then once Mr. No Legs finds out there's a cop that's involved that's going to come looking for the college kid, he kills the college kid. So that's what that's what he does. He doesn't really even incite any of the plot because the cop would have been involved and kind of continued on an investigation with or without Mr. No Legs killing the boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. So he's really just kind of like a cool peripheral character. He, he is. And what ends up happening at the end of the movie is that John Agar, the cop, turns out to be involved with the drug smuggling ring. And the cop, Captain Hathaway, ends up being the one that is like not behind everything, but it, he's the one that they're after the entire movie. And that that forms the last half an hour almost is them chasing him down. Mr. Nolegs didn't even really need to be involved in that. He, like you said, cool peripheral character. But I, I just, it's structured so bizarrely to get rid of your title character. What the, <laughs> what the audience is going to be expecting to be the main character to get rid of him with 20 minutes left in the movie and not even paying it, not even, not even really focus on it. It's just like he gets shot and then we're off to something else. Maybe, I mean, I don't really know much about the, the making of this film. Maybe that was intentional to be sort of like this red herring and, or just to get people in seats to see it. You see the poster of the guy in, in a wheelchair with, you know, <laughs> machine guns coming out of it. And it's called Mr. No Legs. You go, oh, wow, I got to see this movie. And you go in and he's barely in it. I, I, I don't know. That is that is interesting. No, I, I kind of just assumed it was that sort of writing that they don't have. It's certainly not writing by committee, right? Like it, they don't have anybody that's going over it and saying like, well, hey, this doesn't make any sense or uh, <laughs> you've got to have this and this and this in the movie. It is just basically like he could have just been writing a stream of consciousness. Mr. No Legs could have been an afterthought even. It's hard to tell. Um, I mean, he's definitely a memorable character. He's definitely a great character, I would I would argue. But um, yeah, he's he's not really pivotal to the plot. That's another th that that's true as well. Maybe it, it was just something that they they hung the marketing on him because he's the most indelible image from this movie. Oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> definitely. So maybe I'm looking at it all wrong. Maybe if this movie had just been called, I don't know, just called something else, and Mister Nolegs is just this really cool character. I. I, I I got suckered in by the title. I mean, totally would have. <laughs> well, it's on. It, if it had been titled "Gunfight," which is actually an alternate title for it, if that's the way that I knew this movie, 
then probably I would not have cared that much. I would have been like, right. oh, that cool character is dead. <laughs> but calling it Mr. No Legs did make me think like, hey, he's supposed to be the main character and he's hardly in this. It's a, it's a classic grindhouse technique, I think. Yeah. Uh, is to come up with the most salacious, sensationalist title you can for your film. And then sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a film I'll be talking about later where, you know, it had a sort of ordinary title and then they, they kind of jazzed it up when they released it, which, you know, there was a big disagreement among the, the film um, uh, creative team about it. Because, well, I'll get to that later. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that's a, that's, a, I think that's a, that's a typical grindhouse kind of, kind of trick. Oh, yeah. And I, <laughs> I, 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 now I'm kind of embarrassed because I totally should have recognized that from all the times I've thought I was getting a new movie and found out it's just this other movie I knew from a different title. Um, <laughs> I, I should have just realized, like, oh, no, of course they called it Mr. No Legs, not because he's the main character, but because, that's a marketable title that would look good on a grindhouse marquee or on a drive-in. And sometimes these movies have four or five different titles. It just gets yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> I guess that Mr. No Leg, since we're talking so much about him, he's played by Ted Volrath, who mm -hmm. I, I can't find a lot of information about him online. There was a documentary made on him in the seventies called let me live in your world. It's a short documentary, like under half an hour can't find it in, online. I can't find really much information, but what I could find was pretty interesting. Like he, he was a Marine. He was injured in the Korean war. That's why he, he lost his legs. Although he was injured in the Korean war, didn't have his legs amputated for 13 years, which. Wow. Wow. Um, he then, he did found a martial arts school for handy. He, well, it's called the martial arts school for the handy capable incorporated. It's not around anymore that I can find anyway. He acted only in this one movie and he did actually become a black belt. He did become a grandmaster in karate. He knew what? his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what? He became a black belt <laughs> as a w, double amputee in, in multiple, in That's multiple amazing. styles of martial arts. So, but, but he does know stuff that fight scene actually looks good, right? Like he looks like he knows what he's doing. Yeah, it does. <laughs> this, I, and I'd say that's the best scene in the film too. It, it is. That scene, I love that scene. And I love the bar fight scene actually. Yes, that yes. It takes, it kind of comes out of nowhere and it goes on for a very long time. It ends up involving kind of everybody in the bar in some way, even though a lot of them are just sitting and watching and laughing and clapping at it. It's, but it, it's a really like, it's, it's kind of a brutal fight. It's a really fun scene though. Oh man, that scene that, that was, you know, I, I liked this film from, from the first scene, but once we got to the bar fight, I was like, okay, this is the bar fight and the swimming pool fight are, are in my exploitation hall of fame yeah these two scenes are worth the price of admission there's just so much going on in this bar fight there's a there's a woman named bitchy bessie who gets into a fight <laughs> uh the 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 restrooms if you notice are marked mates and bitches yeah, yeah. <laughs> um there's a little person who get who stands on the bar which reminded me of total recall i don't know if that was a specific influence on total recall but <laughs> It certainly oh. seems similar. Um, yeah. And there's a drag queen as well. 
Yeah, the the scene like kind of had everything. Like it, it seemed did. like <laughs> it seemed like they were just throwing in a bunch of. I mean, well, you know, it's not too polite to say it like now because it's kind of treating these people as just as fetish objects or whatever. But it did seem like it was just throwing in everything to make it look like just this very kind of seedy underbelly bar. Yeah. In a way that was just like so ridiculous and so much fun. Uh, <laughs> and and there's you know some some racism being thrown out by some of oh, these bar patrons and, and they're getting their asses kicked which is also very satisfying to watch so <laughs> there's so much going on in that just i don't know how long it was was it maybe four or five minutes at team? least it felt like yeah, at least i kind of struggle a little bit on this show with how much i need to or uh, i need to address some of the problematic elements of the movies that we're watching because there's a lot of, I love a lot of old movies and especially these grindhouse films. They are not going to be anywhere close to politically correct. <laughs> They're going to be so no. <laughs> ridiculously dated and so many things are going to be so offensive to people. And yet I feel like there's an element of, uh, to that kind of provocativeness that people just, well, people kind of have to expect. Like, like, yes, yes. And and so I don't know how much I should say like, oh, well, it's wrong that they did this because it's like, of course it is. They knew that at the time it was it was in there because it was kind of wrong. It was just I don't know, especially in the 70s where the counterculture was just like it was progressive in a way to just push buttons, you know, like to to mm-hmm. say things that were offensive is a way to kind of fight back against whatever state of normalcy or or dominant culture was at the time and i i'll go ahead sorry i I was just gonna in a way that like that now we look at and see as completely problematic but at the time it was seen as kind of the opposite i guess maybe maybe not quite the opposite but i I, hopefully i'm making sense with what i mean well i i think I think if anybody wanders into the alley of of exploitation grindhouse films, they have to know what they're in for, and you, you have to be able to take it within the zeitgeist of the time. Like I, I'm a very big believer that you should watch old movies with the mindset that that they were made with. And the other thing is the reason I love particularly '70s films is because I feel like they worked without a safety net. And a lot of times they just threw everything they could at the wall to see if it stuck. And I feel like, you know, the seventies was kind of the height of that and the eighties was doing it too. And then after that, it kind of started to die and things have gotten really, really safe. Now for some, you know, in some ways it's a good thing that we've, we've kind of become more sanitized with regards to film. And in some ways it's, it's, it, I kind of miss this era where everything went. It's let, let's just do whatever we can. And as you said, they, they pushed a lot of buttons. I mean, I only recently in the last couple of years got into John Waters and okay, Pink, yeah. Pink, Pink Flamingos. And Pink Flamingos is definitely a movie where it's just a bunch of people getting together to make a film to, to see how many people they can offend. But there's sometimes there's a certain charm to it. Obviously, I have my limits too. There's there's stuff that offends me, but um, I don't know. There, there's something kind of charming, and, and in some ways, some of these films I think are kind of progressive and ahead of their time. It's 
it's a rough around the edges way of doing it. But again, like I said, I, I try very hard to assess them um, with the mindset of the time because it, it's just, if you're going back 50 years to one of these films, it's kind of unfair to say, well, this is wrong. And, and you know, it's like, it, it depends on what it is, of course. Uh, of course. And I, I do want to say, I agree with you that I try to approach a movie on its own terms and the terms of the culture in which it was made. But I, I, I'm also of the opinion that you should be clear eyed about the things that it's doing that are maybe not good. Like, <laughs> like there are, are certainly older movies that we can go back and say, oh, it's just a product of, a, a product of its time. If it's birth of a nation or something, I think that's like reprehensible. I mean, even yeah. at the time they even knew. At the time it was. Yeah, that's disgusting. But um, I'm saying that, like, go back and appreciate the movie or, or approach the movie from the time frame of it, that it's been made. But it, it is good as well to keep, you know, keep your mind on like, well, this isn't good, what it's doing. But <laughs> before I say that this movie isn't good, I do want to say that part of it, like it's a counterculture that it, you're right is progressive or some of these movies are kind of progressive for what they are in a holly like in a hollywood movie from 1978 you were not going to see a scene with a man romancing a drag queen at a bar you're not going to see a black little person involved in this scene and they're not the butt of a joke i mean yeah. kind of, there's a bit of humor with the drag queen but they're not they're not being made a joke their existence is not a joke yeah. Um, and yeah. you can say maybe they're put in here because they just want it to look strange. And so they're making them exotic in a way they shouldn't. That's arguable. Like, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say that that's what they're trying to do. But I'm just saying, like, the, the, the fact is they would not get representation outside of these movies. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I think that's something important for, for people to, to keep in mind when they watch a movie like this. It's, it's, it presents a lot of things that you're not going to see in a mainstream Hollywood picture at that time. So as sort of flawed as it may be in the execution, I think it's, it is progressive, kind of progressive for its time. Yeah. Uh, to a point, I don't want to get too like, like praise this movie too much, but yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it, I think it feels a bit more inclusive towards yes. those, those people than yes than a lot of people might expect. Um, now, it, was there any was there anything in this film that you would say, like, straight up offended you or? No, no. But I'm 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 a you know I'm a young middle aged white guy that mm -hmm. isn't going to be offended by some of this. I actually I'm trying to think. Other than that scene in the bar fight, there's not a lot of representation of anybody. Like everybody else in the movie is white or Italian, right? Like or meant to be? Uh, mostly, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, and there are only two female characters, I believe, and they're sort of just ornaments. <laughs> yeah. So it's. I don't think this movie is really offensive. I don't. I can't imagine anybody that listens to this show being offended by Mister No Legs. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, like the movie is done with a seriousness that it, there is grit because it is filmed on the streets of Tampa. Like it is very much like that bar is probably a real place that existed at the time. Even the pawn shops and just the locations, it, it is gritty because it feels real. And 
very run down because it's the mid seventies in a, you know, in an urban sprawl, Florida as well, but it's not overly ugly. Like a lot of these movies are kind of ugly. This one I didn't think was ugly. No, no. Yeah. And, and the grittiness actually reminded me of the Italian um, Poliziotteschi movies. I think we watched one on cinematic void, right? Uh, it was called, Oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it. Silent um, action. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I've yeah. seen a couple of those Italian films so far. And, and this kind of had that flavor to it a little bit at times, which I thought was really cool. It had that grittiness and I, but, but that seriousness too, uh, where it was a sort of mystery and a, and a crime film, I didn't expect that layer to this when I went into it. I just expected a straight up grimy kind of grindhouse film. So that was that was kind of cool. And and the location work, as you said, is is really neat, too. I, I didn't realize it was Florida at the time, I don't think. And then I read about it afterward. I was like, oh, OK. I thought that was interesting, too. So there's a couple of things. I just I don't know how much you have in your notes, but I got two more things, at least, that I want to mention <laughs> that I knew I wanted to mention. Um, okay. Going back to talk about Ted Volrath, who played Mr. No Legs, and I might be mispronouncing that, Ted Volrath movie. I did find a magazine clipping from the mid-70s or late-70s where he was promoting this movie at a karate tournament, and he came out in a wheelchair, in the trick wheelchair from the movie that has the hidden shotguns in the armrests, <laughs> and he spoke a little bit to the audience, and then he, like, the, the person writing it, like he jumped up or not jumped up. He pushed himself up with his arms, opened up the hidden compartments to drop out, you know, the shotguns pop out and then fired blanks at the audience. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Which, yes, I can't. I have to imagine it, it had to drum up some interest. Yeah. And then I, I meant to mention it earlier when we were talking about the casting on this John Agar of course, was in one of the Creature movies. Uh, I believe he was in Revenge of the Creature. Oh, he was. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. The, the Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite movie monster of all time. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I, I just recently saw that uh, for the first time. I saw it on Svenguli a couple, oh. maybe like a month or two ago. And uh, yeah, I, I loved it. That was, it was really great. Do you have any uh, any other thoughts on Mr. No Legs? Any other things you want to say about it? I think we covered a lot of bases. Uh, but yeah, that, 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 as you say, the quote unquote third act is kind of interesting because it's, it's a 20, 25 minute car chase. Uh, Mr. No Legs is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> it's, um, and plus like, there's a degree of, you know, it is an amazing car chase. Like, like, especially for a film of, which seems to be fairly low budget. It's a really good car chase, I think. But on the other hand, like after you've seen a double double amputee kicking ass out of his wheelchair, like the car chase seems kind of ordinary. It does. It, it is impressive. <laughs> I do like I do like it. And now, you know, just it's occurring to me here at this late stage in our discussion that the name Mr. No Legs was misleading in a disappointing way. I can't imagine actually the title gunfighter being any better. <laughs> like, like, yeah, who, yeah. Who is the gunfighter? What is the gunfight? Cause even, even when there is, uh, you know, there is gunfire in the movie, it's mainly just one person coming out and shooting another. It's never a gunfight. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I it makes it sound like a Western. Yeah. I, I, it's I, a bad title for it. Mission No Legs <laughs> is a great title, even though it, it did make me think, want something else. Yeah, I, I think they made the right decision. And I, I got to say, talking to you with talking to you about this movie and watching it again this last time and just thinking about it, I really think I'm going to buy that Blu-ray. Massacre Video put out a very nice looking Blu-ray and apparently restored it to the best it's probably ever going to look. So I'm. Um, I'm probably just going to bite the bullet, even though I was like watching it thinking, ah, I don't need to, I don't need this. I don't know if I'm going to watch it again. I definitely now <laughs> want it on my shelf. Yeah. I'm glad you alerted me to the fact that, that this has a new release. Cause I will definitely buy it. Me personally, I will definitely watch this again. Like I, like I said, I, I really loved it. it it's right up my alley. I thought there was a, a lot of funny parts, some great action a really interesting crime element to it. I, I, I thought it all hung together very, very nicely. And like I said, 10 years ago, I would have looked at this film differently, but um, I think I, I feel like everything I've seen has kind of led up to a film like this. So <laughs> uh, thank you for turning me on to it. Oh, no problem. That's, that's probably the reason I would buy it just so I could show it to people that come over for movie nights. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a conversation piece kind of film. I think. Definitely. It, it would be fun in a group or a, a theater. I'd love to see this in a theater once oh, everything reopens. I would too. I really, I really would like this to be, I don't know. It, it does seem a little bit, it doesn't quite seem cinematic void. I don't know why. It, mm. it, it, it feels a little bit, it feels kind of like Grindhouse in a way that they don't normally show. Because the, the stuff he shows is, is usually a little bit more fantastical, a little bit more, I don't want to say the word goofy, but there's usually some sort of some more psychotronic element to it than what Mr. Nelix has. Yeah, I could kind of see that. Although this this also kind of reminds me of 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 something like Blood Freak in some ways. So I, I don't know. But yeah, I I don't well, know who would show it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if Void ain't going to show it, I, I don't know who would. Oh, there's I'm sure there's there's others. Yeah, I'm not sure. The new Bev would probably show Mr. No Legs now that I think yeah. about it. Yeah, that's a good that's a good call. But I wonder if there's any good 35 millimeter prints of it. Yeah, I <laughs> I highly highly doubt it. You know, I've seen I've seen prints at the Bev that were falling apart, and and they even said we we gotta apologize. Like this might disintegrate while we're showing it. Oh, I, <laughs> so <laughs> they did that at the um at the cinematic void that I went to the print for torso was in very bad shape. <laughs> it was oh, really? really? Oh. Yeah. It, it was, it was really like yellowed and like, oh. and scratched. I mean, it was fine. You, you could tell what was going on, but it's just like, it's, it looks better if you watch it at home, but it was, yeah. cool seeing it. it was just cool seeing it with the crowd. I saw torso at the Bev and I don't remember that print being too bad but i remember the beyond print that they showed at uh that void showed was was yellow oh yeah or fairly yellow yeah I, but i still loved that movie but yeah print availability is, is a is a rough one okay so uh i think that that's going to do it for our discussion on mr no legs we will take another quick break just a couple of seconds for you basically and we'll come back and we'll discuss our next movie 
rich and powerful landlords are forcing helpless tenants out of their homes, and they'll use any means to throw them out in the street. Shit! E. Bartley Alden, landlord. We must empty these buildings immediately or the deal will fall through and we stand to lose millions of dollars. Emmanuel Jackson, landlord. Get him. Ain't that what I told you? I told you all this shit with lawyers was wasting our time. Abraham Mursky, landlord. So don't give him an ordinary payoff. Give him an extraordinary payoff. But let's get it done, for God's sakes. Clarence W. Engstrom, landlord. You just can't come out and tell a judge of the state supreme court that you're having somebody murdered. Claudios Albano, landlord. People live in those buildings. People. And as crummy as those dumps are, they're people's homes. And don't forget it, mister. They're not leaving, and I'm not leaving. So you can take this here polite bribe, and you can shove it up your polite ass. Death Promise. Starring Charles Bonnet, Tenet, Young, Strong, Deadly. Damn it, I want those names. Determined to stop them. Who sent you? Fight to the death. Death Promise, acclaimed by critics as a chilling and exciting motion picture in the tradition of Death Wish. Both the rich landlords have been getting away long enough. It's time they paid for it. Death Promise, a promise made, a promise kept. Coming to this theater soon, rated R. When his father is murdered, Charlie Roman begins training to become a killing machine. Returning to New York, he begins methodically assassinating the slumlords responsible for his father's death. Now, that, that, that's like the briefest possible plot summary. It, 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 I'm not saying a lot there, but this movie is... <laughs> if nothing else, this movie is very... Well, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this because I, I do like this movie. It, it is very neat in a way yes. It, yes. it's very <laughs> it is very single minded and <laughs> it it knows what it's going for and everything is kind of just in service of that very very basic plot and this was your choice this week i'd never even heard of it before you mentioned it and suggested it and i've watched it uh well i've actually watched it 3 times now cuz I, I watched it as a group oh, watch wow. i got some friends i keep talking about group watches the first time i watched it i watched it with them and I watched it again just to spend a little, you know, pay a bit more attention to it because we're kind of chatting a little bit while we're watching. And then I watched it, uh, the Rift Tracks version. Oh, no. <laughs> which I will say right now, this is one of those times where like kind of appreciating these movies now in a way that I maybe not, wouldn't have a few years ago, like you, like you seeing the Rift Tracks. I mean, I, I wasn't angry at it, but I was kind of like, oh, that's not funny because the movie is trying to do this. And you're, yes. You're misunderstanding it. But um, not, not, yes. that, not that this movie isn't riffable. I think there are stuff that you can kind of like have fun with. Oh, and sure. Not, not that they're not funny doing it. I thought a lot of things they said were funny, but I really had to kind of turn it off in my head and be like, no, no, no. They're just doing this because that's their job to make fun of this movie. Some of, Even though I thought some of the things they were making fun of were not necessarily worthy of being made fun of. Yeah. Um, um, in fact, that is why I have uh, avoided the Rift Tracks version. Um, 
because I, I first saw this at the New Beverly. This was actually the last screening I saw before COVID every, shut everything down. Um, and I loved it. And the audience was really into it. And as much as I love Rift Tracks and those guys, and like I said, I've been a Mystery Science Theater fan since 1991. This is a film that like, I don't really want to see it riffed on. Like, I, I really appreciate what they went for. And I think it's mostly successful in what it tries to do. And I think it's a blast on its own. I mean, at some point, I probably will watch the riff tracks just out of curiosity. But I kind of think it works on its own as a, as a admittedly ramshackle kind of grindhouse film. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I think of the two movies, I do think I like Mr. No Legs a little bit more. But this one, it, I mean, we, we don't really need to compare them in that way. But um, <laughs> But this one was fun. I I will say it kind of drags for me a little bit in the middle section when he is training. Like mm. the, the training scenes are not as exciting to me as what happens directly after the training scenes. And yeah. the stuff in the beginning is just so much fun because it's got so much like so much of that 70s New York flavor. Like the the slums that they're filming in, the, the the crappy apartments, even the building that the dojo is in, just the people walking down the street and they're kind of filming it in these alleys and kind of guerrilla style it looks. Like it just it has so much really cool flavor. And and I kind of like the characters a lot. Like, I mean, I'll we'll get into it, but my favorite character in this was Speedy, his best friend. Yeah. I <laughs> Speedy Leacock. Yeah. Yeah. He's so great <laughs> in this movie. And we'll get into why I think he's like a really good character as well. I, I really like the setting in the beginning so much. And the characters, like the, you know, the, a lot of people that are non actors, I, this is another movie where if you look it up, a lot of these people only had one or two roles, or this is the only thing that they were in, like Speedy Leacock. He's never been anything else. Yeah. Like some non-actors or some non-professional actors, I should say. Yet there's like a, a really good like feel to this movie. I keep saying flavor, but it just like it has a, a, a good vibe to it. Like if you're into this type of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this became an instant favorite for me. And as you said, it, it's a it's a portrait of a New York that doesn't exist anymore, really, um, which is always exciting to see on film. And kind of like Mr. No Legs, but to a much lesser extent, it does have a couple people with a pedigree. The Slumlord King is Vincent Van Lynn, who did a ton of TV work. I didn't know that when I first saw this, um, but I looked him up. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I didn't know this until the other night. The the master, Tony Liu, Master Ying, yeah. He has like a serious pedigree in Kung Fu films. Like he was in all the major Bruce Lee films. Oh. Yeah, yeah I had I no idea. Oh, wow. I'm looking uh -huh. at it now and I'm like, yeah, I I did a little bit of research on some of them, but I didn't go that deep on him, I get on the cast, I guess. But yeah, look at all that. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And the lead the lead here is Charles Bonet and he was mostly a fighter and, and he kind of went by the name, the, the Latin Panther, which I found amusing. Um, and he has very few roles other than this. Um, the most noteworthy one for me is this really grimy, uh, greasy 1979 horror film called Don't Go in the House, 
he has a very small part at the beginning of that. And I saw that after I saw this. So he's like kind of unrecognizable in that film. But um, so, yeah, th there are some people in this that do have a little bit of a history. But for the most part, it is these no names and, and they're all charming and they're all they all have different <laughs> skill levels of acting. Some are quite bad, but somehow it, it's all it's all very, very charming and it works for me. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. I think this is a type of movie that you kind of need to be like, well, for both of these movies, this has to be a genre that you're already enjoying. Like, this isn't going to be just something that anybody is going to watch and be like, oh, this is great. But Yeah, these are these are like graduate level grindhouse films, I would I would say. OK, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It is a fun movie. And in a way, like you, you talk about seeing it this at the New Beverly. And that's perfect because this is definitely the type of movie that would have informed a young Tarantino. <laughs> like the Oh, for sure. I mean, there there are parts of this where I swear he took for Kill Bill. Yeah. Oh, well, there's the list that he's going down. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of a trope even before this or Kill Bill. But it's the way he's like underlining and crossing off names and uh, mm -hmm. The, the variety of kills in this movie, I think, is great. It's never just like, okay, now we're going to have a fight scene or now we're going to have some shooting. Like, the, the kills are executed in a different way. Like, they're kind of tailor-made for each character that is being killed. Yeah. In a way that I, I found, especially on a rewatch, like, I don't know if I noticed it the first time, but the second time I was watching it, I was like, oh, wow, these this is great variety it is adding to the movie that you know the one guy well of course the first one the arrow scene is fucking great <laughs> it, it's, it's ridiculous and over the top but it's so much fun and then you know then it's so bizarre it's just a bizarre way to go down so we gotta we gotta say it like there's so much there's it's ridiculous because for everything to happen this way it like so many coincidences have to go in place but Charlie, well, and, sure, yeah. yeah. Charlie and Speedy break onto the uh, the palatial grounds of I can't remember what the character name is, but he's basically a mob boss, uh, one of the slum lords. Right. He, he's out in his, in his yard practicing archery and with one of his goons, and he tells his goon to go get his own bow so that he can practice archery as well. And while the goon is gone, they attack the mob boss tie him up and put him behind the target. So when the goon comes back and starts firing <laughs> arrows into the target, they're going through his chest and head. And, <laughs> and he's like bound so the guy doesn't know it until he goes to get his arrows back. And he's like, why aren't they coming out? It, it's ridiculous. It's so over the top. And it's really fun. Yeah. Like, like, I don't know. It's, it's a level of creativity into these kills that I think is a, several notches above what you often get in this type of movie. Yes, for, for sure. All the kills are, are amazing in this. And like you said earlier, you know, the, the middle of the picture does sag a little bit. Like that, that first screening I was at, I was like, okay, what's going on now? Because it's all training. I find it much more interesting now, now that I've seen the movie three times. I, I really like that training sequence. It is a little slow. But then you hit like about the middle of the movie, I think, is when these kills start happening. And from there, 
at least for me, it's like off to the races. I mean, it's this string of just him hunting all these people down and killing them in these really bizarre, creative ways. And then, um, well, we'll talk about the finale later, too. We got to talk about that. Oh, of course. <laughs> I, th- I think the failure of the training scenes is that they don't necessarily introduce the character of uh, Sup Kim, his uh the friend oh. he makes while he's training they don't adequately yeah. build him up as a character because he becomes very important in the finale of the movie and i wish more of the training montages they're not even really quite montages as we know <laughs> but more of the training scenes had been about had, had included him like had it like been establishing his character so that when he comes up like he arrives in new york in the third act of the movie it would be more uh not not meaningful but his character would have been established so we would have understand their fr- understood their friendship and why he's helping him all of a sudden yeah i could see that yeah because I, I, I really do like sup kim in this but he does sort of just sort of sneak on in there um for about halfway through maybe maybe closer to the third act he kind of comes in and um yeah i guess that's a, that's a good point you, they don't really introduce him that well they do introduce him, but it's it's he's not focused on very much. And then when he shows yeah. up again, the first time I watched it, when he show up, showed up again, I was like, "Who is this guy? Why are we just now meeting him?" <laughs> like I had, I obviously I was chatting with friends, but I had been watching the movie. And I'm like, "Well, is this guy somebody he trained with? Somebody he knows from the dojo? I don't know who this is." But. <laughs> I do kind of love though that that he's in there, and and I love the inclusivity of the of that that trio too. Um, as we were talking about the other movie, there was sort of the sort of sideways uh, progressiveness of these films. <laughs> I love that there's a white guy, a black guy and an Asian guy who are the main protagonists of this film. Even if they didn't really artfully introduce Sub Kim, they could have done more with him. But I do love that. That's how this film ends is the three of them just sort of kicking ass. Yeah. And to that, to that point, one thing, one, of my, one note I really made and impressed me the first viewing, and I liked it more on subsequent viewings, is Speedy is really his own character. He's, he's introduced, he could very easily just be the best friend. And yeah. for a lot of the movie, he kind of is. But while, uh, while Charlie is off training, we see all these scenes of Speedy kind of following the group of landlords, the slumlords, and he's photographing them. And he seems to be compiling information. When Charlie comes back, Speedy is like, here, I can help you. And it just seems like he's all doing this to help aid the white guy at the you know center of the plot. And it's revealed um, in like midway through the movie that he is doing this for his own reasons. One of the slumlords is, um, is Jackson, is a drug pusher he blames speedy blames for his brother's death oh that's right yeah i forgot about that and there's a really great exchange which i can't tell if it was meant to be funny but it is definitely funny (laughs) where speedy's like he he you know he's responsible for the junk that killed my brother and charlie goes brother i didn't know you had a brother and speedy goes i don't anymore Yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of intentional humor in this. Like, the first time you watch it, it's a little, you're like, what's up with this movie? Is it just inept? Or, 
Um, but I think by the end of the, the first viewing, at least at least in my take, I, I think that a lot of this movie is very self-conscious. Like, I, I think it knows what it's doing. I think I thought so, too. I thought more of the humor was in in place. But I, like really quickly about about Speedy is I like that they gave him agency. They gave him his own story. He is doing this on his own and is kind of just helping the white guy because <laughs> he knows they both have the same goal. But he he tells him, like, no, I have to be the one to take down Jackson. And that's when we find out why he's been helping him. So um, Sup Kim doesn't necessarily get that same depth, but he's also a much more minor character than Speedy. But I, I it's another thing that this movie did that I, I think is a few notches above others of its kind in that it makes Speedy like gives him his own desires and his own reasons for doing things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, on a similar note, I would say that I think one of the biggest drawing points of this film is just the fact that it's, it's basically a film about gentrification and slumlords and revenge upon these like awful capitalists. I don't require a movie like this to have any kind of, moral center necessarily or 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 big message but i think the fact that it kind of does makes it as you say it's a couple of rungs above a lot of other films i've seen in the in this in this in this sort of cinematic <laughs> ghetto um is it does have a point to it and it does feel really satisfying when you get to that ending um i, I like i said i saw this at the new bev and people in the theater were just going crazy at the ending of this movie because it's like yes finally <laughs> i can imagine especially in like hollywood and especially here in california the idea of gentrification it's so like our homeless problem is through the roof and there's mm -hmm. like no housing here and especially this last year i was watching this I'm like oh wow this is very timely because we all want to <laughs> like hunt down our landlords right now it's these huge like Beverly Hills kind of centered corporations or not even corporations, but LLCs that are owning all of our property and we're spending all of our money and giving them all of our money. Like it's just so much in the air right now, the cancel rent movement. Yeah. It, 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 it definitely felt cathartic as somebody who's like, like yeah. haven't been working for a year and yet the majority of my money, if I get any money is still going to my landlords. Oh gosh, I mean, not to bring it down. I I'm not. <laughs> I, I we have a roof over our heads. We are very thankful. We are fine. I'm just saying, like I I totally felt like this movie was made for right now, <laughs> even though it, even though it was made for New York in the 70s. Yeah, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that this was, like I said, the last film I saw in an LA theater before COVID hit, because now, I mean, I mean, even at the time it felt extremely relevant and now, I mean, even more so, Yeah. <laughs> you know, now, now it's getting a Blu-ray treatment and I, I, I think it's at the perfect sort of time. Um, th this, this movie's due for a Renaissance here because it's, you know, we're still dealing with the same thing. This movie is available if people want to watch it. It's on, Tubi, you can rent it from Amazon, but Tubi is free. Uh, Pluto TV, I think, as well. I'm trying to remember where, where I think I must have watched it on Tubi, honestly. Yeah, it is on Tubi. Yeah, and, and Prime. Tubi and Prime. So just 
the other night I watched Dolomite is my name finally. Oh, cool. And there's a moment near the end where the movie is finally being played to an audience. And the guy who owns the theater is surprised that people are laughing at Dolomite. And he asks if it's supposed to be funny. And <laughs> Death Promise, like we talked a little bit about the humor, kind of struck me a little bit like that. Like it's gritty and grimy, but not too dark. It is not as serious as Mr. No Legs. Mm -hmm. it, it does feel like there are some goofy, like funny moments in it. I think right up until the scene where Jackson assaults the woman who's begging him for drugs, like where mm -hmm. he like forces her to get naked and she like doesn't want to. And like the movie, it isn't meant to be titillating. Like it's not staying on it in kind of a salacious way, but it, that scene unfolds so slowly that it just felt uncomfortable, especially between some of the goofier moments on either side of it. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I mean, I think, I think they were trying to really show how awful that character was. So it kind of builds up. It, it makes you want to see him die more. Because <laughs> um, I, I feel like they all kind of had little moments like that. But yeah, he definitely has the longest scene of him being sort of a scumbag. But it wouldn't lead to the catharsis of Speedy putting that bag of rats over his head. Yes. <laughs> what maybe maybe the best kill in the whole whole movie. I mean, again, our audience was just eating it up. That that, <laughs> that scene was was classic. Yeah, I I think I've got to give it to the arrow scene, but I do like that. I like when he's he does that that old assassin's trick. That you, you would have seen it in Gross Point Blank, where he basically runs a thread over the sleeping guy's mouth and drips liquid poison. Yeah, yeah, and that's also in uh, a James Bond movie too. I think it, it was it. You only live twice. It, that that seems like the most likely. I don't remember it in You Only Live Twice, but I mean that is the Japanese James Bond movie. So yeah, yeah. I mean, my first when I first saw this, my first thought was was also Gross Point Blank because I love that movie. But then I think I saw You Only Live Twice after that i was like oh that's where they got that from huh. but that yeah that's just like a classic trope oh and there's there's another <laughs> there's another james bond nod in this movie i think is um with uh the the shadowy figure that you don't know who who that is until the end petting the cat oh yeah seeing him from the back and it's very blowfeld so i think there's a lot of little in jokes in this and each time i watch it i catch something new and it just makes me respect it more that I, I think I think a lot of it is really intentional. And I think they knew what they were doing. Yeah, it, it, they have to be intentional, especially because, yes, there's the villain with the cat. And we recognize the villain when they finally appear because we never see their face. But when they finally appear on screen, we're supposed to recognize they're the villain because that cat is there. Right. <laughs> Improbably, that cat is there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll just get right into the ending then. So the ending, Speedy and Charlie uh, practice karate at this dojo with Master Shibata. Mm -hmm. And Master Shibata is really fr good friends with Charlie's father. So when Charlie's father dies, Master Shibata sends him off to train to become a better killer <laughs> so that he can take revenge. At the end of the movie, we find out that the unseen person that has been in charge of this whole whatever they're trying to do, the slumlords are trying to get people out of the building by shutting off water, power, putting rats in the building. Um, the person who's in charge of that is Master Shibata. He is, uh, he is Yakuza. Yeah. And 
<laughs> I I really like that reveal. Speedy, Supkim, and Charlie are kind of making their way through the building. Like Charlie Charlie's making his own way, and Supkim and Speedy are going through the up the stairs and they're taking out all the henchmen on the way. They get to a point where they they come out into a hallway and all of the henchmen are already dead and they're like well what's what's going on here uh, we can't we don't have time to stop we got to keep going and they go into another room and the, they keep finding dead bodies and then charlie and them kind of are going after who we think is the main guy the person behind everything and he's starting to get away he runs out the building a sword just basically comes into frame and slashes at him and kills him yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then we re then the the reveal is that Master Shibata had, was Yakuza. He was in charge of them all along. Which, I mean, I I they watched this three times. I still don't know what his plan was. I know he's <laughs> I know he's getting rid of his partners for some reason. I'm assuming so he doesn't have to split whatever money they're going to make from the deal. But I don't understand what the deal is other than they want to get these people out of this building. So they can redevelop the land, I guess. I, I just don't understand why he was doing what he was doing. Yeah, it, it's a little muddled. I, I'm not entirely sure either. But but I think I think the the point is that all these people are sort of out for themselves. So you have um, you have the main slumlord who who's trying to get all these people out of the way, and then there's somebody even above him trying to get him out of the way it's just like this this onion and you can't really trust any of these people so maybe the point is that i i don't know <laughs> maybe the yeah. point is you just can't trust anybody and uh when capitalism is concerned i, I don't know oh that yeah that's true that's true <laughs> i also i'm also curious about shibata's plan to send charlie off to train to become a world-class killer and then fight him <laughs> um, yeah I feel like maybe that's a, I haven't seen a lot of Kung Fu movies, but I feel like that's sort of a, a trope that's been used in those. So, so it kind of didn't, it, it kind of didn't shock me that much. It, it was strange, but, but I think that's been done before. Oh yeah. I didn't, I wasn't too shocked by it. I, I was just saying like, well, he could have just not revealed himself there at the end and gotten away with it. And Charlie would have never known. <laughs> like, yeah, he, he, he comes right out at the end and he's like, it was me all along. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then has a really long fight with Charlie where he does not utilize the sword that's swinging around on his wa waist. <laughs> until, until finally they do, he brings out his sword and Charlie brings out the scythe that he's been hiding somewhere on his yeah. body. And then, and then they, they, then again, they throw them away. Right. Like, don't they like, just, yeah. Never mind. We'll do this with fists. And... Yeah. Well, and that's one thing I think we should briefly talk about is is the fight scenes in this film are actually really good. Like you can tell these are actual fighters. That they're not very long scenes, but you can tell these that these are these are guys who know what they're doing. Um, they they seem to have all the moves down and everything, and and this this rooftop scene especially kind of goes on for what a good ten minutes or so. Yeah, it's pretty long. Um, yeah, it's it's it feels like a very satisfying final battle up up on the top of this skyscraper, and you know that that's another classic kind of trope from these 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 movies. Um, now, do we want to talk about the, the the money shot in this scene? Because 
<laughs> to me, it's the best part of the movie. Well, go or, for it. I'm not do, sure I know what you're talking about. Uh, well, after after he kill or after he. Oh, okay. I think I know what you're talking about. Go yeah, ahead. You, after he kicks Shibata's ass, and it takes a while. It's a pretty even fight for a while. He drags him by the hair to the edge of this skyscraper's roof, and just tosses him, and we get this glorious dummy drop and this is where our audience just lost it i mean like <laughs> if so- you don't have goodwill for this movie after that scene you know you've, you've wandered down the wrong alley i am so jealous you got to see this in the theater this sounds like it would be so much fun to see with a crowd it was a blast and and you know it must have done well there because because when i first saw it it was a double with super fuzz and it was the the B film. Oh wow! And they were gonna bring it back in March, and it was gonna be the 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 headlining film. So they were gonna they were gonna show it a month later, which they don't usually do there. They don't usually show something and then show it again the next month. Mm-hmm. And I was gonna go, and then of course everything shut down. But um, I think it went over very well. That's that's good to hear. I huh? This and Superfuzz. I think I might like this more than Superfuzz. Oh, I definitely do. I know yeah. I know people love Super Fuzz, but I remember being a little bit lukewarm on it. Yeah, Super Fuzz is ultra goofy and I do enjoy it and appreciate it, but it yeah, I, I definitely thought this was the better film. I I, I definitely enjoy this a lot more. Uh, now both films definitely have very memorable, indelible earworm uh, main themes too, I'll say that. Yeah, that's a promise. That's, that's a promise. <laughs> I really, I really, really like the music in this, uh, the main theme. In fact, when I saw this at the Bev, I think Phil Blankenship introduced it and he said, you will not get this song out of your head <laughs> when this song is over. And sure enough, in the lobby, people were saying, that's a promise. They kept saying it. <laughs> oh, it's just, gosh, that's it great. is a total earworm. Yeah. So, so I hope when everything opens up again, I hope they show it again. Cause, cause man, what a, what a treasure, what a, what a gem this was to, to find and to see with an audience. Oh, that's great. So before we, I'm not sure how much you have one, have one in your notes, but before we wrap up, this is the only film directed by Robert Warmflash, which <laughs> certainly sounds like a fake name, yeah, but, it does. <laughs> but he's a successful production manager. Like, yeah. A very good career. He mainly documentaries, but he worked on like water for chocolate. He worked with Abel Ferrara on New Rose Hotel. Mm-hmm. I think he's still around. He's working on a lot of stuff, so good for him. Yeah, yeah, he's had a he's had a pretty decent career. It's very strange that this is the only film he directed. And and another funny thing is, I the last time I watched this for this for this podcast, I noticed that he had two relatives that were listed in the credits too. Yeah, yeah. Stuart and Susan Warmflash are also in this film somewhere. So I don't know if they went on to do anything in the industry, but um, it's kind of funny that you have three warm flashes in, in this film. <laughs> yeah, and I'm always very interested in those people who only do one movie. Like, I know it happens. I know people, there are people who just do one thing as a favor or they just, their careers don't make it. They decide that it's not for them. But like the people who only do one film and then nothing else. And I really would like to know what happened to Speedy Leacock. Yeah, sounds, yeah. It sounds pretty fake, that name. And I was like, well, is he an adult film actor? And this is like his one attempt at a, you know, quote unquote, mainstream film. But I couldn't even find any information anywhere. I don't know what his real name is. 
there's nothing out there about him anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I really wish they would do like a documentary on this or something, because I would love to know what happened to all these people. And I'd love a commentary. I, I just I need to know more about about this film and these people. I wonder if anybody could contact Robert Warm Flash. Well, there's a Blu-ray of what. I wonder if there's anything on the special features, if he has a commentary or anything, because I'm, I'm always just fascinated. And we're losing these people every day. Like, I know. Pretty soon, we're not going to have any information. There's just, it's, it's the same with all movie history, but there's just these movies that are going to be lost and nobody's going to really know anything about them. Yeah, because Scream Factory recently put out uh, one of my favorite horror films, um, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Okay. I was really hoping they could get uh, Zora Lampert and Mary Claire Costello to do some kind of special feature for it, but they're they're just not on there. Now, they, they did get the director, um, John D. Hancock, and, and somebody else. But li- like you said, you know, these people aren't getting any younger and and these films need to be preserved and and if at all possible get get people that worked on these films you know get a couple people to to talk about them just so we have some kind of historical record and you know of them talking about the production of these because that's so valuable do you have anything else that you wanted to say or is that one thing i wanted to point out is i i i wonder if this was if this was a precursor to Karate Kid. It was, with, <laughs> well, well, talking about. I know. Oh, okay. <laughs> with the chopsticks. Yeah. Yeah. The fly. There's a scene, yeah, where he catches a fly with chopsticks, and and I'm thinking, oh my god, this was <laughs> what seven years before Karate Kid. I did look years? that up. I mean, obviously, I knew this was before Karate Kid, but I'm like, huh, how long before Karate Kid was this? <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other, the only other thing I I, I wanted to mention was that the I think the the father is one of the better actors in this, and I find his scenes and the voiceovers to to be actually kind of touching. Yeah, um, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. I weirdly touching for an exploitation film, like oh, you know, it kind of gives it an extra little emotional push. He um, has a really good relationship with Charlie. Him and Charlie really, I don't. Know, I really like their their relationship. And how how protective they were of that building, and how they were trying to organize the the tenants to stand up to unionize. Yeah, yeah. And then there was when there's that voiceover of him reading the letter. I was like, oh, that's kind of touching. That's kind of that's kind of cool. No, agreed. This is a good movie. I I enjoyed this. I'm glad you picked this because I had no idea about it. And oh, cool. Uh, and 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 I guess we should say that like. I think even more so than Mr. No Legs, like this does have some flaws. <laughs> like, like there's at least three scenes where you can see a boom mic shadow yeah. and yeah. there's some weird camera movement and stuff. But like, I really do think that it's just, they tried to make a really good movie and just didn't have the tools and the money and the resources to do it. And, and even in some cases, the actors to do it. Um, but I, I do think like, like it's for this genre, I do think, as you said, it's a couple rungs above a lot of other films I've seen. And it's just so satisfying. And it does have a moral center to it, too. And the fight scenes are great. Uh, and it's got that musical earworm. So, yeah, I, I think this has a lot going for it. And and yeah, everybody, if you can see this in a theater, please do it because 
It is a totally different experience. I mean, I've seen this twice at home too, and and it's been satisfying at home too. But if you can see it in a theater of people, it's there's, there's just like nothing like it. It was one of my favorite screenings ever. I agree with all of that. I do think that Mr. No Legs ha- has more polish. I think Mr. No Legs is probably a better put together movie, despite mm-hmm. my my flaws, the flaws I found in it. I think Death Promise is a more ambitious film. Like that's like, a good way to put it. Yeah, they, yeah. They tried different things, and just the like I said, the variety of kills. There's there is maybe a little bit more thought put into everything that's there. They just didn't have the skills that were there on uh, Mr. No Legs. Yeah, I could I could see that because I I honestly loved I, I love both of these movies. A, about equally, I, I maybe love Death Promise a hair more, um, but I can totally agree with with the idea that that Mr. No Legs is is a little more polished and a little little more competently made, maybe, maybe even more of a budget because they obviously they got a couple of big name well that may not big name stars but they got some stars with some pedigrees in that one. Yeah, so I, I would agree with that with that assessment. Okay, we're back here with our top five of the week, and we're going to be jumping off of the theme of Grindhouse. Now, uh, just want to say, I want to say something really quick before we get into this, where we talked a little bit about how this year and this last couple of years, maybe, have changed how we view movies or the type of movies that we view. And this year in general, I've been watching a lot of more movies that would be considered quote unquote grindhouse because I know grindhouse is kind of a nebulous term for movies. Yeah. Anyway. There's a lot of different things that you could call grindhouse. I've been watching a lot more this year. And so I felt I kind of had to pay homage to the people that have been getting me into movies, the type of movies I've been getting into this year. So all of my choices are things that I've seen for the first time within the last year as part of a group watch somehow. One of them is for the vo- from the void One's from a different online screening I saw. And then the others are from various group watches I did with my friends. So that's what, uh, that's what all my five went with. Okay. Or the theme that I went with. But the first one I'm going to go for is Death House from 1988. It is the only movie directed by John Saxon. Really? He has a small role in it. It is a zombies in prison movie. And... (laughs) It's pretty terrible. It's not good. It's not good. But I got obsessed with this movie. I I told you I'm interested in movie people who only did like one movie. And so I was looking at this. I'm like, man, the producers only did this and a couple of other movies. The people that wrote it only did this movie. There's so many actors that have only done this movie. (laughs) Like John Saxon only directed one. And why is it this one that I actually contacted some of the writers because there's three or four credited writers on this movie. I got in touch with them and like asked them questions about it. I found some guy who wrote a book where he interviewed some people who made it and I was asking him questions about it. I was actually planning on like writing a really long piece about it and eventually I'll finish it. But it's not a very good movie. But for some reason, I was just really fascinated by it. Oh, wow. (laughs) 
that sounds promising. So that's kind of disappointing that it's not great. <laughs> that's on paper. That sounds great. Um, there's there are some devotees of this movie as, as part of like just kind of like a so bad it's good, which is I don't like that term so bad it's good. But I yeah. just, I think the movie kind of fails. It's not very compelling. But I like I said, I was just like, how did this happen? <laughs> and how is it? <laughs> How did this happen? And then none of these people really worked again. I mean, except for John Saxon, of course. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds that sounds interesting. I think you can still find it on YouTube. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. So I guess I'm just going to do mine in chronological order for no other reason, just because it just makes sense. So my first would be um, 1970s I Drink Your Blood. Uh, directed by David E. Durston. Now, this is yet another movie I saw at the New Beverly uh, with a packed house. In fact, this was one of the first, like, really seedy exploitation films that I think I saw. It is incredibly bizarre. It is right in that sort of post-Manson pocket of exploitation. Uh-huh. So it's about, you know, this cult of, of these these men and women who are in this cult and they go around town creating trouble and they do something to this kid's grandpa. And then this kid takes revenge by injecting meat pies with rabies and feeding it to these gang members. (laughs) And then from then on, the movie is just insane. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of blood in it and there's nudity and there's, some pretty questionable things in it that couldn't be done now. <laughs> I'm sure. But it is a blast, though. It's got this crazy analog synth score and and a little bit of like weird sort of uh, post-hippie kind of music in it, too, and funk. And it's just a blast. It was one of those movies where, as Bill Hicks used to say, my, my, my third eye was squeegeed when I saw this movie. <laughs> it opened up a whole new realm for me. Um, so that that's a that's a really great one. I have not seen that one either. I'm going to have to, I'm putting it on my watch list. Oh, cool. So my next one is actually, my next one's going to be a, a void screening. I'm sure you, you know about this is burial ground. Yes. Which is now, <laughs> I think fairly infamous in cinematic void history. <laughs> if nothing else, because of the character of Michael, the <laughs> very, very creepy, 30 year old 10 year old incestuous like death obsessed kid <laughs> it's it's such a ridiculous movie it's one that i watched and i think at least five times in the movie i went what the fuck like <laughs> it's such a it's such a ridiculous movie i i watched this one twice I watched it on Friday and then the next day I just watched it again because I was like that, like how much of that was real? <laughs> yeah. I've been wanting to watch it again. Cause that was insane. I mean, I mean just like, and it gets more and more wrong and it just kind of doubles down on that wrongness. <laughs> <Yeah. like laughs> but it actually like it succeeds as a zombie movie too. Like as, as it, it's Italian, right? It was an Italian film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's something about Italian zombies they're just they look like they could crumble at any time yeah. it's a totally different kind of zombie and something is so creepy and you can almost smell it coming off the screen but yeah that and 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 the the politically incorrect nature about yeah, like, yeah. 
that it kind of that, like doubles down on being wrong. There's a certain point where a lot of movies they they kind of stop escalating like it get to a point where like okay that's as like extreme as it's going to get barrel ground is just like topping itself right up until the last scene yeah. <laughs> yeah and then and then because we saw it through cinematic void we got deanna rooney playing michael as a as like a guest character on the show who's come through a few times yeah yeah she's always really great and so that was that was a fun addition to that episode yeah that's a that's a great one so my next one is a Kung Fu film that I saw also at the New Beverly. Now, this is Blood of the Dragon, oh. directed by uh, uh, Cao Pao Shu from 1971. And she was a female Kung Fu filmmaker, which she might be the only one to make those films at that time. I, I think she might have been the only one. And it was, I'm kind of a relative newcomer to Kung Fu films. And this was really the first one I saw that had like a bit of a heart to it and um, a really nice kind of storyline between this older man and and this young boy. And they're kind of going out on this journey. And it was it was really kind of touching, had a lot of great action sequences. Oddly enough, it was more weaponry than hand to hand combat, which I thought was interesting. But then we get to this finale. And again, I think there were traces of, of Kill Bill that, that, that Tarantino took for Kill Bill from this. There's this finale that is just absolutely amazing. You've got the, the, the lead uh, adult character and this kid on either side of this tavern, and they are fighting these hordes of enemies, and it's incredible. That was, that was a really, really great discovery. That's probably my favorite martial arts film that I've seen so far. Oh, wow. Oh, I haven't seen this, but I see that it's on. I mean, we're giving them so many plugs. I see that it's on Tubi, <laughs> and it's got Jimmy Wang Yu in it. Awesome. Yeah, 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 and he's really great in it too. And and uh, I just thought, wow, that's a that's a really really kind of touching film with a lot of great action and and the the tone, I think is 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 just kind of sets it apart from the other ones that I've seen so far. And as I said, it's it's from a female director, so that's real special too. So, yeah, I, I would highly recommend that. Okay, I'm you're putting you're giving me a lot that I'm putting on my list. Oh, good, good. My next one is also a martial arts film. Again, another one I just saw a couple months ago with the group. It's Kill or Be Killed. It's a martial mm. arts movie from South Africa. It is a kind of it, it's a tournament movie. And we talk about politically incorrect because the villain, I mean, politically incorrect, it's the villain. The villain's a Nazi. The villain <laughs> oh. is a Nazi, but so is the side that he is fighting against. Uh, I kind of, because they, he is trying to recreate or relitigate a tournament that they had during World War II that got interrupted or like he feels he wrongly lost. And so he, he gets this other like this Asian master that he had his school fighting against. And he's like, pick your fighters. <laughs> and there's, there's a tournament, like it was a big success and there was a sequel and there was going to be a third film as well. The sequel's not as good. It, it does become more of a James Bond movie. Like it's, a, <laughs> it's kind of a globe trotting, but it's still another one of those like assemble the group kind of movies. It's kind of a star vehicle for James Ryan, who, who's the South African martial artist. If there had been any justice in the in this world, he would have been a key member of the Golan Globus Canon Films 
acting troupe. Like there would have been a, a series of ninja movies starring him because he's very charismatic, especially for, you know, what you kind of sometimes expect from these martial arts movies. He's a guy who can act a little bit and there's a nice sense of humor to the movie. There is this, another like little person character. Is it Chico? I think is his name. He steals the show. He's <laughs> yeah. Chico is so goddamn awesome in this movie. I had a lot of fun with this. It is ridiculous. It, it, but it knows it's ridiculous. It, it is funny intentionally. And it's a lot of fun. That sounds great. Yeah. I'm going to have to check that out. And For the sequel. Sure. Both of them are available online. The The sequel is really good. I wish they had done the third one. I just think the first one is mainly because of Chico. Chico really is just a delight <laughs> every time he's on screen. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so my uh, my third choice is a film that was, was brought into one of my online uh, remote screenings uh, in the past year by my cousin, it's called Malatesta's Carnival of Blood. Yeah, good. I, I one I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is from 1973, directed by Christopher Spieth, and and this is a a one and done. Uh, he, uh, he never did any other film. Man, this knocked me out when I saw it, because not only you know it, it's just a very low budget, ramshackle, creepy, grimy, greasy surrealist kind of horror movie made you know with no budget just they, they you can tell they made it because they were out at this they had access to this abandoned amusement park in philadelphia so they created this like sort of nightmare escape with these uh weird characters and a loose plot but it, it's one of those movies that gets under your skin and and it hit home for me too because i it reminded me of this little uh amusement park pretty close to where i live that's gotten more and more dilapidated through the years and it, it so it hit me on that level too but uh another interesting thing about this film is it's one of the very first appearances of hervé villachez yep. who plays uh uh i think his name's bobo in it yeah <laughs> so it's kind of like it has a little bit of that carnival of souls vibe to it but weirder and grimier and and more bizarre and yeah i just i really loved it that one's good that's part of uh, arrow released that as part of their american horror project yeah mm -hmm. they're kind of like rescuing regional films like this they're all great i haven't seen volume two of that american horror project but all three movies in that first volume are super interesting like i I'm really glad that they're out there doing this. Uh, that's that's one I was really glad to see. Yeah, in fact, we we did that as a double with one of the other films in that box, The Premonition, which is also really good. Yeah, that one's good. Uh, My favorite in that box actually is is the one you didn't watch, <laughs> The Witch Who Came From the Sea. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So my next one is The Doll Squad by Ooh. Ted V. Michaels from 1973. I mentioned earlier in the show that I'm kind of I was kind of going through Ted V. Michael's filmography and then I lost a little bit of interest. And then a month or two months ago, our group, we watched this one from him. It predates Charlie's Angels. My friend that knows you know, more about this than I do was, oh. was saying that Aaron Spelling there may have based Charlie's Angels on this movie. There's some kind of character types and names that are similar. It's about a, bunch, a group of 
women government agent, you know, martial artists and demolitions experts, and they're trying to catch these saboteurs for the senator. It's ridiculous. It is a little bit more polished than Ted V. Michaels sometimes is. It looks like he's working with more of a budget than he normally has. And when I say more of a budget, that just means it looks like he he filmed it at actual locations instead of just a Motel 6. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, it's, it's really cheap, but also he's got actual actors in it and more than just one location, like more than one empty hotel room with curtains all over the place. <laughs> It's probably one of my favorite Dead V. Michaels films, although I have to say I love the the Astro Zombies sequels when where he's just he's clearly just getting ca cast members that were fans of his movies. You see a bunch of people with <laughs> misfits tattoos in the cast like they're just obviously he went to some message boards and said, hey, come over here to like come out to the valley and you can be in my movie. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's fun. I, I liked it. So my my fourth one is uh, the first Giallo film I ever saw. It's uh, Umberto Lenzi's Eyeball oh, from okay. 1975. Uh, yet another movie I saw at the New Beverly. A really fun Giallo with an actual pretty decent whodunit kind of aspect to it. Really colorful characters an earworm of a main title theme that they probably overuse by Bruno Nicolai, who, who scored a lot of these Giallo films. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's not, it's not my favorite Giallo, but it will always be special to me because it was the first one I saw and it was, it was a lot of fun and it was kind of my introduction to that world. So uh, I, I'm still very fond of it and I would still recommend it. Nice. Uh, that's one I have not seen. So Another one that will go on the watch list. <laughs> nice. So my last pick is, well, I mean, you know, it's not quite a giallo. Um, it's close. I guess, I guess maybe it could consider, be considered a giallo. Is Lucio Fulci's The Devil's Honey. Ooh. Which is kind of a later period Lucio Fulci. I think it's 1989. I, I We mentioned him earlier. We were talking a little bit about the beyond. And... I kind of got burnt out on Fulci at a certain period. Like I'd just been watching everything I could find, but then I watched a few too many that I was like, oh, that's so bad. It's awful. <laughs> and, and he is very hit or miss. So I got burnt out and there's a ton of stuff in his filmography I've never seen. So I've seen a few this year. And this one, it came from a period a lot of people consider his lost years. Like he's, he, this is when he's just not doing anything very interesting. And I actually think it's one of his best. I, I think huh. it, I think it kind of just barely misses the target of what it's going for. Like it, it could have just been ramped up one more notch and been classic. It could have been great, but this is probably the best, most classical directing he's ever done. Like things flow very well. The psychology is there. Like everything is kind of like, if not perfect, it is very, it is much more um and i'm not trying to use the word restrained because this movie is definitely not restrained but <laughs> it's kind of a psychosexual melodrama and you you will watch this movie and there's at least one popular clip you'll recognize and be like oh i i've seen this it's kind of sleazy it's almost like a skinamax style like mystery thriller movie but 
No, it, it's got some of his best directing and some of his kind of like tightest, most controlled filmmaking. I was very wow, wow, that's great because I'm a I'm a I'm a big Fulci fan, at least of the couple I've seen. Uh, so I'm gonna definitely have to check this out because I, I pretty much love the four or five of his films that I've seen. So my fifth one, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to go with this, but. This might be more of an obvious one. <laughs> this is uh, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. No, oh, that works. That works. Uh, I, I know, like, he, pro he it probably seems like, well, he's a big name director. Yeah, but this is a movie that I think tends to be overlooked in his filmography. There are times where it's my favorite movie that he's done, which is saying something because he tends to be my favorite director. If you're looking for, like, a grindhouse type of film that's a little more proficient, but still has that grittiness to it and that look and that feel the Los Angeles location work and gangs. And I, I really love this movie. I, I This is another one I've seen at the, at the New Beverly. I, I had seen it way before that too, but um, I saw it there and, and Austin Stoker was there, which was really cool. But uh, this is a movie I just I love more every time I see it. In a way, it's kind of good that it's like the last on my list here because I think it's it's kind of the the more polished of all these. Um, I had several honorable mentions, but I, I ended ended up going with this for my fifth spot. It's a good choice. Your everything you said about it is completely right. This is one that I kind of overlook in John Carpenter. I mean, I, it, it's because I kind of recognize it as a classic, but it's the one that I don't go back to as often as I do some of his others. Mm. But he's, of that generation of the accepted masters of horror, you know, Carpenter is my favorite. I think he is the best filmmaker, has the strongest runs of great films. Yeah. I, I just don't know why I haven't gone back to Assault on Precinct 13 in years, but I've rewatched most of the others several times, even recently. And see, it's good that you say that because then I feel better that I chose that <laughs> because <laughs> at first I was like, oh, this is a Carpenter film. Like, this is so obvious. But but I, I really do feel like it's underrated and, and people don't talk about it enough. It's way overshadowed by Halloween um, and, and several of his other films. But uh, this one's special. It's it's he's young and he's green. It's his first major film. And it's just really special. It's got a it's got a mood to it and a darkness and you know all of his films are kind of DIY, but but this one especially I think, uh, at least of his of his non student films, uh, this one is like, you know, really really feels like this insular kind of creation. And then Halloween hits and he becomes this big name and everything kind of changes. But I think this one's a special film in his in his uh, filmography. Yeah, and it, it's a little bit. Like it is the one that would be the most grindhouse out of his filmography because it's a little nastier than even you know Halloween or or The Thing or some of those other like other movies that might get really dark. This one has a nastiness to it that doesn't necessarily carry over to some of his other films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would completely agree with that. I mean, that was great. I loved your list. You've given me a lot I need to watch. I mean, oh, likewise. <laughs> I'm actually probably going to watch some of these i'm going to suggest some of these to my group as like as maybe doing group watches because they sound like they would be great for it oh great but hey before we go was there anything that you wanted to mention anything you want to 
send people towards or promote? Not a whole lot. Uh, uh, if anybody wants to check out any more of my thoughts, you can go to my letterboxed account. It's just Sir Hatch Porch. Um, I am on a little bit of a hiatus right now, but I'm planning on on going back and, and writing again. I think I have almost 700 reviews there. Um, and all my LA theater excursions, I've, you know, written in my diary there and stuff. And, and that's about it. I don't really use Twitter. I don't like it very much other than our cinematic void um, live tweeting. I don't really hang out on Twitter that much. And I have a YouTube channel that I, that I have not maintained in a very long time. So um, for now, I, I would say you can check out my my letterbox page if anybody's interested you can you can check that out uh yeah well so uh this has been great thanks for being here oh yeah and and thank you very much for having me it's it's been an honor to be on here and and i think this went really well it's been a lot of fun talking about this stuff with you and and uh as we've said before hopefully one of these days uh soon we can actually meet meet up at a theater or something and and see some of this stuff in person that would be great Oh man, I can't wait for the uh, Egyptian to open. I mean, the Egyptian's not going to open until next year. <laughs> I know. Even if everything out reopens, they they got that big remodel, which I cannot wait to see. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hopefully, we get out. There's some screenings, and everybody that's been on the show that's in the LA area, we can have some big. Uh, uh, it, you know, all the void people, we can have a big, big party at a screening. I guess it'll be great. Yeah, and it, it would be great to get you out to Horathon this year too, if they have it. You you got to experience it at least once. It's okay. a just a blast. Oh, I look forward to it. I would I would love to do that. Awesome, everybody that's stayed through to the end. Thank you very much. Uh, hope you enjoyed another week. We'll be next week with another show. In the meantime, please, if you if you like it. Wherever you pick this podcast up, whatever app, whatever service, go ahead and rate, review, and or subscribe if you haven't already. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both places, at TwoHeadedPod. And of course, that Facebook page. You, you, everybody should know how to search that if you still are on Facebook. All right, and that'll do it for us this week. We will see you next week with a brand new pair of movies. Mm -hmm.